a pastor stepped forward one Sunday morning uh, to begin the worship service. And as he approached the pulpit, he recognized there was something wrong with the microphone. So uh, instead of saying, may the peace of Christ be with you, as we typically begin our service, he taps the mic and says, there's something wrong with this microphone, to which the congregation responded, and also with you. (laughs) Well, the truth of the matter is, is that there is indeed something wrong with me as your preacher this morning. Uh, I am a sinner. Uh, constantly giving in to my sinful desires. But our joy is this, this morning, uh, that God's Word, that there is nothing wrong with it. It is pure and holy. It is altogether righteous and good. It is infallible. It is inerrant. As the psalmist says of the Word of God, it is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Well, truly it is our blessing today from the mouth of a very imperfect preacher to hear the very perfect Word of God. It is my uh, very great privilege this morning to join in the good work of preaching through the Gospel of Luke, where we finished off uh, right before the season of Advent, uh, we heard a conversation Jesus had with his disciples uh, describing the day of his return. And it will be very important to keep that in mind as the context for the passage in which we will consider together this morning, that passage being Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. So if you have not done so already, I invite you uh, to open a Bible to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. It's always very encouraging uh, to see God's people opening God's Word as a preacher preaches. You'll notice in your bulletins, page 877. If you did not bring a Bible with you is where you will find this text in the Bible located in the the chair in front of you. So again, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14 uh, is what we will consider today. And out of respect for our God and His perfect and holy Word, would you stand together with me? As his word is read. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, 
so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The church family... What do we know about God's Word? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Our righteous, almighty God, our Father, Creator of heaven and earth, thank You for the gift that Your Word is to us. Thank You indeed for the work of Your Spirit in the inspiration of these words so that what was written by the Gospel writer was exactly what you intended to be written. Father, we pray now that by the work of your Spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us today in your Word. That in looking into your Word, we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ and again see in Him righteousness and life. Would your blessings be upon this time in your Holy Word. In the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Charles Schultz, the creator of the comic strip Peanuts, once made this comment, Christmas is doing a little something extra for someone. Well, no doubt many of us, if not all of us, have been engaged in doing something a little extra for those around us. Maybe it's a wrapped Christmas present for a child under a Christmas tree. Uh, maybe it's a gift card uh, that was purchased and sent to another family member uh, somewhere in a different part of our country. Uh, maybe it was a donation uh, to a charitable organization or a ministry effort. Or maybe it was volunteering time to help someone in need. I can be honest with you to say that our family has been the recipient this Christmas season of more than just a little something extra. Uh, we have been the recipient of something more than that through the generosity of family and friends. But the truth of the matter is, uh, during this Christmas season, we reflect upon the fact that all of us are recipients of more than just a little extra. 
indeed in Christ, we have been the recipients of grace upon grace upon grace. The eternal Lord Jesus Christ became man, was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin named Mary, was born and placed in a feed trough for livestock, went on to live a life of perfect obedience and righteousness that you and I cannot live, then went to the cross to die for sin, not his own, but for ours, dying the death that we deserve to die, and then on the third day rose again. He then ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, having given the promise that he will soon return for us to complete the blessed salvation that he has given. Indeed, all of us are recipients of more than just a little extra. Christmas is a time to reflect upon the overabundance that God has given to us, that God has done for us in Christ. Well, speaking of doing something a little bit extra for someone else, my wife recently asked if I would be willing to do something a little extra for her. During the Christmas season every year, my wife gets together with uh, her mother, her sister, and her sister-in-law to enjoy an evening out. So her simple request of me was that I keep a monitor on for our youngest daughter, Cora, who is 17 months old. Well, I was certainly glad to do that. I flipped the monitor on, went to bed, and fell fast asleep. Now, a few minutes after midnight, I woke up to Cora crying. Uh, Becca was not yet home, and so I quickly picked up my phone and made a phone call. What is it that you would have me do? Well, her response was, uh, if she doesn't stop crying, just go into her room, pick her up, and rock her until I can get home. Well, with a smile on my face and a spring in my step, not really, uh, I headed to Cora's bedroom to do that very thing. Now, I'm sure that my daughter Cora was probably thinking to herself, what in the world is going on here? Dad never does this with me. But I picked her up and began to rock her, and a few minutes later, she was done with me rocking her and thought it was time to get up and go play. Well, obviously, I was still tired and uh, did the next best thing. I took her back to my bed, uh, put her into the bed next to me, uh, attempted to go back to sleep, hoping that Cora would still be there when my wife came back home. <laughs> well, happily, uh, Cora did stay there. Uh, my wife did return back home, rescued Cora from our bed. Sadly, I was not found doing what it is that my wife had asked me to do. And Cora started to cry. Now, thankfully, I have a very patient and gracious wife. Well, just as I was confident that my wife would soon return home to rescue Cora from her father, we are also confident that the Lord Jesus will make good on his promise to come again for us. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. As we look forward with much anticipation to the return of our Savior for us, the truth is there are some things that our Savior desires to find us doing 
when He returns. And so we are in the position as God's people this morning, desiring to know what are those things that the Savior would have us do, would, be, would have us be found doing when He returns. Because it is our great desire that when the Lord Jesus returns for us, that we would be well-pleasing to Him. That we would hear from Him, well done, good and faithful servants. So here's the question which I would like to ask and answer for us today. What are some of those things that the Lord Jesus desires to find us doing when He returns? What are those things in which He would ask us to be actively engaged in up until and including the day of His return? What are some of those things that He would have us give ourselves to as we wait for His great appearance? Well, happily, our passage that we read earlier in Luke's Gospel provides an excellent answer to that question. Now, here's the roadmap that I would like to follow through the text this morning. First, we are going to see once again who it is, who this Lord Jesus is, who will soon return for His people. And then we will consider two specific things that the Lord desires to find us doing when He returns. And what we had seen just prior to this passage we read in Luke 18 is a conversation Jesus was having about the full manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. As a matter of fact, it was the Pharisees who asked him the question, uh, when will the kingdom of God come? Now, in response to that question, Jesus answered in two different ways. First of all, he had made it very clear that the kingdom of God was with them in their midst that the kingdom of God was present with them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Jesus, to his disciples, spoke of a future day in which the kingdom of God would come. It would be a day that would be tied up with the return of the Son of Man. It would be a day that would be as bright and as unmistakable and as sudden as lightning. Now, it would be a future day that would come after his first appearance, experiencing suffering and rejection. But when the Son of Man comes again in all of his glory to complete the work of salvation for his people, it will also be a great and terrible day of judgment for those who choose not to repent and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. So Jesus tells his disciples that they are to be very careful to live their lives in a certain way. That they are to be those who remember that whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus makes very clear to his disciples that this is not a time for self-centered pursuits. It is a time for sacrificial devotion in service to the Lord Jesus and the spread of the good news about Him and in the making of disciples. Now as we turn the corner into chapter 18, 
Uh, it seems to be that uh, Jesus, in continuing this conversation with his disciples about the full manifestation of God's kingdom come when the Lord Jesus returns, that we will now see those two specific things that the Lord Jesus desires to find his people doing when he returns. Now, before we look at those two specific things, let's first of all take just a moment to take a look at who it is that this Lord Jesus is who will return for his people. If you will, as we take a look at chapter 18, beginning with verse 2, we are introduced to a judge. As a matter of fact, we will find um, the Lord Jesus pointing out another figure in this passage who puts himself in a position as judge. And then Jesus will point to himself as the judge. Notice again verse 2 of chapter 18. Jesus speaks of a judge who neither fears God nor respects man. Now for Jesus' original hearers, they would have been mortified at the thought of this kind of judge. Someone who was in a position to decide cases for God's covenant people who had no respect for God no respect for his commands, nor love for the people that he served. Jesus' original listeners would have quickly understood that this was an unfit judge for his office. Someone who cared only about himself, someone who was in the potential to cause much harm and injury to others. In the second parable, which we'll take a look at in more detail in just a few moments, we are introduced to a Pharisee. We see him in verse 10. Now this particular Pharisee would have at least been in the position to serve on the highest ruling council for the Jewish people, the, the Sanhedrin. Therefore, he was at least in the position to serve as a judge ruling over certain cases that would be heard. But regardless of whether or not this Pharisee served in that particular way, he felt that he was in a position to cast critical judgment on others. He felt that in light of the life that he lived, that he was in a position to determine that he was more righteous than others. He felt like he could be in a position to exonerate himself and to condemn others. Indeed, this is an unfit judge, an unjust judge as well. But now we turn our attention to the one who is the judge with a capital J. Just as we recite together in our Apostles' Creed that the Lord Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Notice, if you will, the reference Jesus makes to himself in that position of being the judge. Take a look, if you will, at verse 8 for just a moment. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, a favorite designation of his. Now, this is not merely an indication that the Lord Jesus possesses full humanity. No, indeed, this is an indication that Jesus is the divine ruler. For just a moment, would you hold your places here in Luke chapter 18 and turn, if you will, back to the First Testament, uh, to the prophetic book of Daniel. If we will, let's, let's turn to, to Daniel uh, chapter 7. 
And look at verses 13 and 14. The context here in Daniel chapter 7 is God the Father known as the Ancient of Days who is the ruler over all in comparison to all of the rulers and the kings that will come. Uh, that Daniel has a chance to look into the future and see. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, then we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus uses uh, this title of himself back in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Son of Man, it is a cryptic reference back to this passage in Daniel, that the Lord Jesus is the one who has been entrusted with a position of divine rulership, Divine judgeship over all. Now, why would that be significant to us today as we consider these two parables before us? Well, I would suggest to you that the two things that Jesus desires to find us doing when he does return are not to be considered by us to be mere recommendations that we can take or leave at whim. These two things that we will see in these parables that Jesus desires to find us doing when he returns are not simply suggestions that we can take or leave. No, indeed, because the Lord Jesus is the judge, the Son of Man, divine ruler. These two things that we will see are to be considered by us to be commands to obey. Obligations that the Lord Jesus has placed upon us as his followers. Now, don't get me wrong. That is not to say that our Lord Jesus is some mean tyrant, angrily barking his commands, ready to whip us on the backs if we are not found in conformity to his ways. Now, sadly, uh, as a father, I can be somewhat of a harsh Taskmaster. Let me give you a quick example of that. Uh, this past Thursday, my family and I headed out the door to enjoy a day at the Arboretum. Uh, Seth and Kristen Cobb were kind enough to share with us some extra tickets that they had. and uh, The forecast said that uh, this past Thursday would be a beautiful day to be outside. And indeed, it was a gorgeous day uh, to be out at a place like the Arboretum. We're all headed out the door, we're uh, getting into our van, and Jace, my oldest son, uh, says that he wants to go back in for just a moment to check his phone. Uh, Jace got a new phone for Christmas and uh, is enjoying it. I wanted to check and see if there were a few messages. Well, after a few moments, it seemed to me that Jace was taking a little bit too long uh, with his phone. Uh, So I go back into the front door of the house, and I say, Jace, we got to go, bud. Uh, and uh, Jay said, okay, I'll, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. Well, still, he doesn't come. So I begin walking into the house, and Jace meets me in the hallway, and he puts his arms up to me to prevent me from going any further into the house. Now, I could quickly surmise what had happened in looking at his clothes that were wet. 
uh, he had spilled water all over the kitchen floor out of the water bottle that he was to take with him. Now, when I asked my son later, why is it that you did not want me to go further into the home? And his response was, I was concerned that you would be, that you would be upset with me. Boy, I told Jace, I have some work to do as a parent, do I not? Though I may be at times harsh as a father to my children, when we think of the Lord Jesus as the sovereign judge over all the earth, Indeed, we do not think of him as a harsh taskmaster, but as one who is gracious and kind and righteous. Indeed, that is the way that we would see the Lord Jesus in this passage. That Jesus is the righteous, caring judge who will come soon for us. Again, we'll take a little bit of a closer look at this first parable in just a moment, but notice the stark contrast between the unjust judge and the Lord Jesus as the judge. This unjust judge is one who does not fear God, does not love God, does not respect His commands. But Jesus, as the eternal Son of the Father, has an eternal love for His Father and is fully committed to every single word from His Father's mouth. Notice as well that this unjust judge only gives relief to the widow because he doesn't want to be bothered by her anymore. But indeed, the Lord Jesus as the judge gives help and relief to his people because it is right. It is the right thing to do according to his own word and according to his own promise. And as we read of this unjust judge who cares not for men, cares not for this widow, we look upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as one who is ever compassionate, ever gracious, ever loving to us as His people. So as we hear these two specific things that Jesus desires to find us doing when He returns, keep in mind that we look unto the Lord Jesus as the judge, as the divine ruler, so that these things that he desires to find us doing are not mere suggestions or recommendations, but are commands for us to obey. But let us also remember that he is loving and gracious and compassionate, desirous of blessing us with his soon return to complete for us the full joy of our salvation. Let's now turn, if we will, then, to those two specific things that the Lord Jesus desires to find us doing when He does return. We find it in this first parable that Jesus desires to find us persistent in prayer for the coming of God's kingdom when He returns. That Jesus desires to find us as His people persistent in prayer for the coming of God's kingdom when He comes for us. That Jesus desires that we would be actively engaged in seeking for the coming of God's kingdom in our prayers. Take a look, if you will, at the interpretive clue to this parable at the beginning of chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now this parable is set up in such a way that it is an argument from the lesser to the greater. 
In other words, if X is true or if X happens, then how much more is Y true or should Y happen? So for the purpose of that argument, uh, we would say that the X or the lesser is the parable itself. Let's take a look at what he says. There is a certain judge in this certain city who neither fears God nor respects man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Well, if you know anything about widows in this day, you knew that they were in a very uh, desperate situation. Uh, That in a male-dominated society without a connection to a man, their future was very uncertain and very insecure. There was no government welfare program in existence that would help pick up the slack if there was not a family member that was able to come to the aid of a widow. That's the case of this particular widow. She apparently uh, does not even have a son that is able to provide help for her against whatever this adversary is. Think of this adversary as one who may have a sinister plot to take away her land or her dwelling. Or maybe it's some type of a foreclosure situation. But regardless of what the exact situation is, in her desperation, she turns to the justice system to provide help. Indeed, she actually turns to a judge. Now, we're automatically concerned for the well-being of this widow, are we not? We've already been told about this particular judge that he is an unjust judge, neither fearing God nor respecting man. So we expect for the judge to refuse her request for relief. And indeed, this is what he does. He repeatedly refuses her request, but then, afterward, verse 4, he says to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This judge cares not for the plight of this widow, but cares only for himself. He is fed up and tired of her repeated request and gives in so that she will quit bothering him. Then Jesus grabs the the ears of his disciples and says, verse 6, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In other words, if an unjust judge can be moved to action after repeated request, how much more will God the Father respond to the repeated prayers of his people? Again, he is compassionate, he is gracious, he is inclined to answer the prayers of his people. And not only is God inclined, favorably disposed to his people to provide an answer to their prayers that they continue to pray, he also will not make them wait any longer than what is necessary for the answer. Take a look at the question at the end of verse 7. Will he delay long over them? The implied answer is no. Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, there's some tension here, is there not? 
It seems that Amazon is fairly speedy with its delivery, but it does not seem that God is always so quick to deliver what His people pray for. Now, I think one of the things that is helpful to keep in mind is what Peter says in his second letter, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. In comparison to God's eternal perspective, indeed, the response that he gives to his people in answer to their prayers is quick, is speedy. So there is much motivation here then for the followers of Jesus to continue to pray and to not give in to discouragement and give up praying. Indeed, there is much motivation and encouragement to us here that because of the fact that God is indeed inclined to answer our prayers, that He is inclined to our repeated request to give the deliverance and the relief that we need, and He will not make us wait longer than what we should, that we continue to pray. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever faced discouragement when it seems as if God is not answering your prayers, though you have prayed repeatedly for His help? You know, I've uh, been in that situation personally for uh, about the last five months. I have repeatedly prayed for the last five months that, that the Lord would provide employment for me so that I can meet the needs of my family. I've only had a couple of interviews within the past five months. I've had numerous emails telling me that I'm not the right fit for a particular job that I've applied for. I, I've I had some very great contacts I've made that have been just joyful to get to know, but at least up to this point have not yet been very fruitful. And I wonder to myself, does it do any good to continue to pray? Now, let me be very clear. God has more than supplied the needs of my family, has graciously provided for us, but yet there is still no uh, prospect for employment. So with a passage like this, there is much encouragement. Yes, continue to pray. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ are inclined to your repeated prayers and will not make you wait longer than what is necessary. But I think there is also some conviction here as well. Notice, if you will, the plight of God's people here in verse 7. Again, the idea is that God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. These are a people who are facing persecution, who are being opposed because they follow the Lord Jesus. They are crying out from their persecution, Lord, when will you deliver us from the suffering that we face? And it seems that the deliverance that they desire is tied up with the return of the Son of Man. Again, look at the end of verse 8. We see the reference there, when the Son of Man comes. That the, the, the deliverance that is being prayed for is the, the deliverance that is found in the return of the Son of Man. The conviction for me is this, and maybe for you as well, that as good and as right as it is, as it is to repeatedly pray for proper employment, as good, good as it is to repeatedly pray for a family member who is suffering from some kind of a disease or disorder, that God would provide healing. 
As good and right as it is to pray for a marriage that has fallen on hard times, that that resolution and reconciliation would come. That what we are to set our sights on more than anything else in prayer is the return of the Son of God and the full ushering in of God's kingdom come to earth. This is our greatest joy, is it not? This is our greatest hope, that the Son of Man, that the Lord Jesus Christ, that the divine ruler would come to us and would fully complete the work of salvation that he has begun in us. That he would bring the fullness of the blessings of the salvation that he has secured for us in his death and in his resurrection. Indeed, is this not what the Lord's Prayer teaches us? That before we pray, give us today our daily bread. That we pray that God's kingdom would come. So what is that first thing that Jesus desires to find us doing as his people when he does return? That, he would be, that we would be persistent in prayer for the coming of God's kingdom. For the return of the Son of Man. That even more than we pray for happy and fulfilled marriages, employment that is helpful, and those who are in need of healing, we pray with the priority that the Lord Jesus would come again. That He would come soon. That we would set our desires and our affections and our hopes on that in our prayers first and foremost. And here is the great and encouraging news. When that does come, when the Lord answers the prayer and returns for His people, then all of those other things that we have prayed for will come to pass as well. What does the Lord Jesus desire to find us doing when He returns? That we be persistent in prayer for the coming of God's kingdom. Second, as we take a look at this second parable, Jesus desires to find us pursuing humility over the progress in our sanctification. Jesus desires to find us in a position of humility before Him and before others as we continue to move forward in maturity in our faith. That as we continue to grow in our discipleship and commitment to the Lord, that we are to be a humble and lowly people. For just a few moments, let's take a look at this second parable here. Again, we see the interpretive clue, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We are introduced to two men who go up to the temple to pray. Just a couple of notes here. Notice, if you will, uh, this idea of prayer. It uh, very well may be that Prayer is what links these two parables together at this point in Luke's Gospel. But notice as well, too, that they go up into the temple to pray. Now certainly this is a geographical reference. To go up to the temple uh, was a geographical thing in that the temple in Jerusalem was on an elevated mount. They would literally, physically have to go up to get into the temple. But is there not also a double meaning here? That these two men were to start out lower than the temple an indication that they were to approach God in worship from a position of lowliness and humility. 
We're introduced to the two men here. Again, one is a Pharisee. Uh, one who has been uh, rigorously trained in the Old Testament Scriptures. Very conservative in his Orthodox faith, in his religious life. Notice, if you will, as he prays, verse 11, that in a sense he prays in an appropriate way. He thanks God for the life of righteousness that he lives. That he doesn't enrich himself by extortion or being unjust. He is faithful to his wife, not engaging in adultery. Uh, he does not uh, act like a tax collector in the sense of robbing others for his own gain. He goes above and beyond. He fasts twice a week, more than what the Old Testament scriptures require. He gives tithes of all that he gets. Again, he goes above and beyond. There is a beauty to the religious life and devotion of this Pharisee, but indeed he has a diseased perspective. As we read in his prayer the words, that I am not like other men. We seem to get this indication that the Pharisee thinks about his good works as causing him to uh, merit God's favor. That he is less worthy of condemnation as a sinner because of the good works in which he is engaged. Indeed, how wrong and arrogant that perspective is. That we cannot offer in any way our good works to God to incline Him to us to show us mercy and grace and favor. Indeed, because of this Pharisee's pride and arrogance before God, trusting in His good works to merit favor with God, we read at the end of the parable that indeed He finds no favor with God. Who is the man then who gains favor with God? Well, it is the tax collector. Now, this would be somewhat shocking to Jesus' disciples. It would, it would be almost as if we would say that uh, in our worship setting today, that if there was a deacon here and there was a drug dealer who just randomly happened to walk into our church building, it's the drug dealer who would go away with God's favor, not the deacon. Notice that the uh, tax collector has no pretense here. Verse 13, he stands far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, would beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows himself well enough to know that his only recourse is to throw himself upon the mercy and grace of God. And because he was willing to humble himself, indeed, he found favor with God. We see Jesus say at the end of this parable that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself indeed will be exalted. It is the Lord Jesus' desire when he returns to find us to be a humble people. Again, the Lord's prayer is instructed to us. We pray every single time, forgive us our debts because we realize the depth and the breadth of our sinful condition before God. So the call here is a renewal in our prayers to be humble, to go to God as sinners in need of His mercy and His grace. But is there not also a call here to humility 
before others. Indeed, a, a, a humility before God will often evidence itself in humility before others, just as much as this tax collector may have something to learn from the Pharisee in terms of piety, it's obvious that the Pharisee had something to learn from the tax collector in terms of humility. Now recently I stumbled into a similar experience. I have the privilege of being a substitute teacher in the Garland Independent School District. And oh, the stories that I could tell you. I will spare you many of them. I happened to be working in a fifth grade classroom. Had one particular student that was uh, very undisciplined and very disrespectful. Was constantly asking if he could go to the restroom. Now I knew what he was all about. Uh, He didn't really need to go to the restroom. He just wanted to get out of the classroom for a little while. So again, I repeatedly refused his request. Now, the teacher that I was a substitute for happened to be on campus and was doing some planning that day. She walked into the classroom at about the time that he was asking to go to the restroom and then turns to me and says, I'm going to take this student to the restroom before he has an accident. Now, at this point, I'm a little put off. I'm thinking this teacher is merely pandering to the whims of this student. This student is not about to have an accident. Later on in the day, as I'm talking about the day with the regular teacher, I go ahead and apologize for the awkwardness of that situation. Now, I fully assumed that I was still right by not allowing the student to go to the restroom and thought, well, maybe apology is just the right thing to do in this situation. And interestingly enough, she shared with me a perspective that I had not considered. Uh, This particular student had entered the year with several discipline problems. As a matter of fact, he had actually made some progress over the last couple of months and was doing much better in the classroom. And there will be times when the regular teacher will allow the student to step out to the restroom because it gives him a break that he needs to kind of gather himself so that he can enter back into the classroom to be even more focused on his work. Here I was thinking that I was in the position to teach this teacher about how to best manage a classroom. But the truth of the matter is that she was in a position to teach me. And so I wondered to myself in looking at a a parable like this, what if I was to approach other people in my life that way? Not seeing others in my life as those for whom I am superior to them, but, but as individuals who may have something to teach me when it comes to a life of devotion to God and love for others. Again, what is it that the Lord Jesus would, or what is it that the Lord Jesus desires to find us doing when he returns first? That we be found persistent in prayer for the coming of his kingdom. That we would desire more than anything else in life the return of the judge, our Savior that we would set our desires on that more than anything else, that we would not be so enamored with the comforts of this life that we do not continue to seek in prayer for the coming of the glorious kingdom of God when the Lord Jesus returns. Second, that we are to pursue humility about our progress in sanctification. 
that even as we are making progress to maturity as disciples of the Lord Jesus, that we do not think to ourselves in any way that we merit favor from God, but that He gives it to us graciously, and that we take a position of humility toward others in our lives, realizing that it may be that the person next to us, who we would not assume is in a position to teach us, may show us a helpful perspective on loving God and living for Him. You know, I can't help but think, as we take a look again at Jesus' last statement in verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I cannot help but think of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, as Paul writes in Philippians, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of the Lord Jesus' humility in stooping to a cross for you and me, we have justification. We are declared to be right with God. Because of Jesus' willingness to humble Himself for us and for our salvation, We have been sanctified. We have been set apart unto the Lord to do those things that He desires us to be doing when He does return. So when we hear of these two things that He desires us to do, it is not as if we think to ourselves, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to remain persistent in prayer and to maintain a posture of humility. But no, we continue to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Because it is only in looking to Him that we will find that we will do what it is that He desires on the day of His return. Therefore, let's continue to look to the Lord Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father from where He intercedes and pleads for us. Let's pray. Father, how tremendously thankful we are for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, in whom there is justification, in whom there is sanctification, in whom there is the opportunity to be about the life that He would have us live, to be about the things that He would desire us to do when He returns. Grant us much grace unto that, we pray. In Jesus we ask. Amen.